We'll be looking together at Psalm 22. Book of Psalms, chapter 22. Today is Palm Sunday. It is on this day that we recognize Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. In this week that's coming, we see the the final acceleration of that toward which Jesus' life and ministry has been steadily moving. That is the cross. Just before our Lord took his last breath, Matthew and Mark record that he uttered the first line of Psalm 22 in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ancient Hebrews, they did not number the Psalms like we do. They distinguished each of them by their first lines. Whereas we only think of the words themselves, anyone hearing Jesus say the words that he uttered would have immediately thought of all of Psalm 22. This is a Psalm of David, and though some of the things that David writes were born out of his own experiences, other things obviously were not. David lived almost 1,000 years before Jesus, which makes the accuracy of what the Holy Spirit spoke through him concerning the crucifixion staggering. Having said all of that, however, we should not forget that this psalm was written at a particular point in time by a man with his own unique experiences before the Lord. And because of that, Psalm 22 speaks to us. It's a little long, but I want to read all of Psalm 22 so that we might receive the full impact of it. Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. 
I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who feared the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship and those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. This is the word of the Lord. 500,000 tons of water cascade over Niagara Falls every minute. Let that sink in. Half a million tons of water a minute. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I can imagine the roar is, is nearly deafening, especially if you're close to the falling water. In the winter of 1847 and 1848, heavy winds dislodged these huge floating ice fields in the middle of Lake Erie. What happened was tons of ice ended up jamming the entrance of the Niagara River. And so on March 29, 1848, the falls suddenly stopped flowing. People who lived nearby thought the end of the world had arrived. Mills suddenly stopped operating, water wheels stopped turning, and in an age when so much was dependent upon water power, this had an impact. But what disturbed people the most was the overwhelming silence. It would be 30 hours before the water began to flow again, and that noise was gladly welcomed. The silence had been deafening. As we look at Psalm 22 this morning, I want to first of all consider experiencing the silence. Experiencing the silence. If you walk with the Lord long enough, and sometimes it does not take very long, you will come to a point when the opening words of this psalm erupt as a cry from your heart. You will feel forsaken by the Lord. You groan in prayer, you groan in supplication, but nothing changes. There's no deliverance. Your situation has driven you to cry out day and night, but all that you receive from heaven is silence. You are restless. There is no peace. It's in moments or even seasons like this where you experience the silence of God. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Now, this is not just one of those moments when you pray and, and don't receive an immediate answer. This is not simply a coldness of the heart that we all battle from time to time. These are prayers that are uttered from the depths of your soul 
because certain circumstances have so pressed in upon you that you were driven to desperately seek the face of God. I think of the unexpected death of a spouse, the loss of a job and the financial pressure of still needing to provide for a family, perhaps a dismal diagnosis, even the darkness of depression. There are various ways that we are plunged into such seasons as varied as our individual lives. As David waited patiently for the Lord to make him king over Israel, as God had promised, he was pursued by King Saul. And David zigzagged his way across the wilderness of Judah, hiding in caves like a wild animal. And so David writes in verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. The silence of God is a disorienting silence. You feel forsaken, you feel rejected, you feel rejected by the one who calls you to draw near to him, and he will draw near to you, James 4, 8, yet God does not draw near. You pray, there's no answer, you plead, there's no deliverance, you long for peace to calm the inner turmoil, and peace is as elusive as smoke through your fingers. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. And so you confess, as David does in verse 3, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You know God is there. You know that he is worthy of your praise. And you praise him still. But yet, silence. Nothing changes. And you know what makes this especially difficult? What makes this especially difficult is because God has delivered his people before. He is a God of deliverances. The whole history of Israel, the people of God, is based on deliverance. They were called forth from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The Lord brought them out with signs and wonders. He he stretched out his mighty hand and he intervened to save them. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 14, 13, Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And then God proceeded to sweep back the waters, the Red Sea, so an entire nation could walk across on dry land. The pursuing Egyptian army, they were drowned as they tried to follow, and the waters came crashing back down upon their heads. This event became Israel's rallying cry for generations. Remember the Red Sea. Remember what God did. And as often as the Israelites cried out to God in the wilderness on their way to the land promised to them by God, they were delivered. They were delivered. God did it then. He can do it now. Verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 22. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were delivered. And you they trusted. And we're not disappointed. Look, Lord, you did it then. Why not now? Why not for me? They trusted you and they were not disappointed. I'm trusting you. But only silence. And the disappointment is overwhelming. You see, here's what's happening. 
God is present, but he does nothing. At least your circumstances, they remain the same. Your condition does not improve. There's no end in sight. God might be working at some level. You're convinced that he is working, but that doesn't change the fact that all you hear from him is silence. As I said earlier, if you've never been through a season like this, you will. Some have described it as the dark night of the soul. However you choose to describe it, it's no accident. But knowing that, knowing that God's still in control, that doesn't make it any easier. When God is silent, God feels absent. Not only is God not delivering you, declining to answer your prayer, and allowing this long night to continue, as far as you're concerned, he's checked out altogether. And that is when the mocking voices begin to tempt you. They may not come from some external source, but the enemy knows how to whisper in your ear. And you yourself, if you give in to self-pity, hear the sneering words of verse 8. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And of course, the him is you. And you've committed yourself to God over and over again, but there's no deliverance. There's no rescue. You delight in God, but your prayers go unanswered. The heavens are brass. Your soul is a wasteland. God is there but he might as well be absent. Do, do you hear that in Psalm 22? So what do you do? You're experiencing the silence. It's important. It's crucial in this moment to remember. Remembering in the silence. Remembering in the silence. God may be silent. He definitely feels absent, but he's there. You know he's there because he's always been there. Verses 9 through 10. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Confess your awareness of God's presence in your life. You have physical life because he knit you in the womb of your mother. You have spiritual life if you're a Christian because the Lord has wrought in you a second supernatural birth from the Holy Spirit. You stand by faith on the ground of facts when God is silent. And the facts are the truths of God's word that are always true regardless of what you feel or of what you experience. So this is when you lean into the presence of God by a sheer effort of the will. God's gracious. He often, especially in the early days of our Christian experience, allows us to sense his presence. The waves of joy, if you remember, they're palpable. The, the peace within is unshakable. And these necessary early feelings, they confirm and they solidify what God has done to deliver you from sin and from death. They lay a foundation for the drier, less emotionally intense days ahead. But you and I, we can't live on those emotions indefinitely. 
God knows if he does not cause them to be removed, we will not learn to walk by faith. We will learn to walk by feelings. And that's just not going to do. It's spiritually detrimental. How blessed is the man or woman of God when feelings accompany faith. But when they don't, in those silent seasons, remember, pray with David in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And believe, despite your circumstances and your emotions that declare otherwise, God is near. He has not forgotten you. These men who are making David's life particularly difficult are compared to animals. They are called bulls in verse 12, lions in verse 13, dogs in verse 16. In their proper place in creation, each of these animals serves a purpose that honors their creator. The bull feeds people. In fact, Bashan was a lush region in northern Israel near Galilee. It was known for the cattle that dotted its good grazing land. The lion is majestic in his power, expressed by that rumble of his roar. The dog is a companion animal the nearest of these three animals to man. Yet in these verses, they are not expressing their good roles in the creation order. Instead, they are expressing the way sin has not only corrupted man, but has also corrupted the creation. The bulls they surround in order to terrify and intimidate. The lion is, is ravening, he's opening wide his mouth to devour. The dogs surround like evildoers using sharp teeth to pierce hands and to pierce feet. But none of these animals were created to reflect God. Only man was created to reflect God by representing God, by ruling over his creation, by pointing to the goodness of God through his works and his words and his love. But instead of these men who were tormenting David in Psalm 22, instead of them reflecting their creator, they reflect the sin-corrupted creation. What are the motives? What are the motives of these tormentors? Of these, of these people engaging in such vicious attacks against the man of God? Well, they're the same motives of anyone who torments you, who attacks you, who causes, causes your heart to melt like wax and who dries up your strength. First, there's the crowd mentality. The tendency of people to follow the whims of the populace. Many bulls and many dogs have surrounded me. Then there's the motive of, of greed. And that's common enough. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's verse 18. Greed not only demands things that are valuable, it even stoops to crave the shirt off someone else's back. Thirdly, there's the motive of perverted desires. These tormentors enjoy what they are doing. They enjoy the spectacle. It's the same reason that cruelty and violence are portrayed on TV and in films. People receive morbid pleasure from viewing it. They open wide their mouth at me. They look, they stare at me. Perverted desires. 
And a final motive is simply a murderous one. Sinners entertain hate. We're all capable of entertaining hate. And hatred is murder in the heart. The silence of God is deafening when men are shouting at us. It would be one thing if it was only these disorienting circumstances around us, but add to these the comments of others who either misunderstand or are downright determined to discourage you, and it does zap your remaining strength and decrease your anxiety. Don't miss the adversary lurking in the shadows. Who is it that wants you to believe God has abandoned you? Who is it that wants you to think that you will never hear the voice of God again? It's Satan. It's the enemy of God, and hence the enemy of all who belong to God. The remedy for such attacks, that is, attacks that are inspired by the dark forces of wickedness in heavenly places, that remedy is found in verse 19. But actually, we already know what to do because Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 18, right after the passage concerning the armor of God and how to defend yourself against the devil, Paul writes, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. The answer is to pray. Prayer is hard, especially when you only hear silence. But your prayers... And my prayers, they don't rely on whether or not we feel anything. Our prayers do not rely upon whether or not our circumstances change or whether the troubling men and women around us cease their troublemaking. Because we're told prayers to be done in the Spirit. This phrase, in the Spirit, is so often misunderstood we think it means that we should feel something when we're praying. That we should be aware of something. Or that the Holy Spirit will manifest something. But it, it's much simpler than all of that. To pray in the Spirit is to trust that your prayers are heard because the Spirit of God is praying in you and through you. The Spirit of God is praying in you and through you because Jesus Christ gives you direct access into the presence of God, Jesus also gives the Holy Spirit direct access to you. To pray in the Spirit is to pray in confidence that God hears. It has nothing to do with how well you pray or whether you even feel a single stirring of emotion. God might continue in silence, but that does not matter. You are confident God hears because you are praying with reliance upon His Spirit within you. Praying in the Spirit is praying with confidence that you are heard. Now David knew nothing about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the privilege of the Christian. But he knew how to pray. He knew God was near and listening, even if it didn't seem like that was true or would ever be true again. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. It pleases God 
when you trust him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So how do you please God? By trusting him. There's no greater expression of faith than to trust that God will deliver you when everything around you and in you seems to say otherwise. You see, the, the silence of God, it tests our faith like nothing else. And to still trust that God is near and able and willing to help, even when you feel utterly abandoned, that brings delight to the heart of your Father in heaven. Remembering in the silence. Next, we move to hoping in the silence. Hoping in the silence. There's something else you should do when God is silent. We've seen it's necessary to remember his faithfulness. It's also necessary to pray for deliverance. Never stop praying as an expression of trusting in the dark. We find the next thing that is necessary is to look to the future in expectation. In other words, exercise hope. Remember the past, pray in the present, hope in the future. Remember the past, pray in the present, hope in the future. This is why verse 22 is in the future tense. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. David is speaking of a future moment, something that is not a reality presently, but it will be. Most commentators believe that the assembly here refers to a celebration described in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 16. When an Israelite made a vow before the Lord and the Lord answered his prayer, he would bring an offering to the temple. It was called a votive offering. And this was essentially a sacrifice of thanksgiving, acknowledging God's answer, thanking him for his deliverance. The animal sacrifice itself was the fulfillment of that vow. Verse 25, Psalm 22. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Sometimes a two-day feast was held. The person whose prayer the Lord answered was not supposed to keep that joy to himself. He was to share the joy by inviting his friends and his family and even the needy who could not otherwise afford to eat so well. This is why verse 26 reads, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. The afflicted are any who are oppressed or despised by society. In other words, Everyone benefits when God answers your prayers. But this is all still in the future. This celebration, when the heavens finally split open and the mountains move, has not yet come to pass. God is still silent. Yet there is hope. There is expectation. Verse 24, for he is not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. God heard. Do you hear that? God is silent, but not hidden. God's face may be obscured, but it's still turned toward you. 
even in your darkest moments. If the cloud casts a shadow on you, you don't assume the sun has disappeared. You know the sun is still there. You understand it's still shining towards you. You just can't see it at the moment. It's covered. How can God not pity your affliction? If the suffering of others moves you to compassion, how much more does your suffering move God to compassion? Verse 24, when he cried to him for help, he heard. God hears. He doesn't answer now, but he hears. Hope in that. Look to the moment when the silence will break. The answer will roll in like a flood and the presence of God will feel as near to you as the silence now feels distant. We get so lost in our own heads, so consumed with our own present problems that we fail to contemplate that the silence always comes to an end. It's not permanent. We say to ourselves, if I only knew this will one day be over, I could bear it. Guess what? It will one day be over. It might not be soon, but the end will come. Here's the promise. It's found in verse 26. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Seek him now in the silence because you will praise him then. Let your heart be filled with hope now because it will be filled with joy then. In fact, even during the times when God is not silent, when his leading is clear, when his working is evident, we still do not hear him like we will. We still do not sense his presence in its fullness. But there is coming a day when everything that is only a shadow now will be the reality of which that shadow dimly, dimly represents. We all know that the cancer is not always healed in this life. We all realize that the daily struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil does not completely subside. We understand the wicked are often rewarded with health and long life and the righteous are struck down in their prime and they leave no inheritance. Everything is not right. And it will not be right, even on your best day this side of eternity. Here's the promise, however, that everything is moving toward ultimate rightness. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. What's happening here? We understand that this is speaking of the time after the return of the Lord Jesus. We know this because verse 28 says, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Jesus is not doing that yet. But the moment when Jesus sits on his throne and the nations are subdued to the ends of the earth is the moment 
when God will dwell in his fullness with his people. But that time is not yet. Hoping in the silence. And I want us to see secured by the silence. Secured by the silence. Though David wrote this psalm, there are places within it that simply do not match up with anything David ever experienced. Though David wrote from his own experiences, the Holy Spirit was guiding him to write of another's experience as well. As Jesus Christ hung dying on a Roman cross a thousand years later, we read in Matthew 27, 39, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. This is in fulfillment of Psalm 22, 7. All who see me sneer at me. They separate their lip. They wag the head. In verses 41 and 42 of Matthew 27, we read, The chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They continue in their mocking. And so we read in verse 43 of Matthew 27, a direct quote from Psalm 22:8. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. In David's own life, there were times when he was surrounded and his Life was in danger. We understand, therefore, why he writes in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. But the rest of verse 16, Psalm 22, does not correspond to anything in David's story. There is not even a form of execution that lined up with such treatment in the time of the kings of Israel. They pierced my hands and my feet. But we know exactly what this is talking about. Those nails driven through the flesh of Jesus, pinning him to the cross. In Matthew 27, 35, we read, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. All of the gospel writers record the cruel, dismissive way those Roman soldiers sat in the dirt of the shadow of the cross and gambled for the simple clothes of Jesus. Psalm 22, verses 17 through 18. It reads, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And then... After the first three long, excruciating hours as Jesus bled and suffocated beneath the morning sun, Matthew 27, 45 tells us, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In one of his final utterances, Jesus cries out to his father, quoting 
the prayer of anguish that opens up Psalm 22. Jesus was focusing the attention of the bystanders on Psalm 22. Yes, he was doing that, but he was also doing more. He was asking his Father in heaven, why the silence? Why the silence? This is what I do not want you to miss this morning. When David prayed this prayer, when you and I prayed this prayer, we are wondering at the silence of God at a time when we desperately need to hear from him. But God's silence toward you and me never means God is absent. We might feel abandoned, but we are not. And the reason that we know for sure God is still near, still present, still working, the reason you know for certain that God has not abandoned you is because, in fact, He did abandon His Son. From all eternity, the Son of God lived in perfect, harmonious, glorious, joyful intimacy with His Father. Even when the Son was born as a man, He did not lose His connection with God. Jesus Christ walked in the presence of God Jesus demonstrated what fellowship with God looks like. He prayed to Him and He heard from Him always and everywhere. That is, right up to the moment when Jesus needed His Father the most. As physically unbearable and excruciatingly painful as death by crucifixion would have been, it was absolutely nothing compared to the unbearable and agonizing separation that Jesus experienced when the Father broke fellowship with His Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason? Because on the cross, Jesus became the sin offering. The wrath of God that you and I fully deserve fell fully on him. Jesus was cursed. The righteous one was counted unrighteous. Jesus Christ tasted the hell of separation from his father so that you and I do not have to taste separation from God forever in hell. Jesus was judged unrighteous so that through faith in him, you might receive the righteousness of God. Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one proclaims, they will come and will declare his righteousness. If you are a Christian here this morning, the reason that you are right before God is because Jesus Christ was abandoned. Having paid for all eternity the price that you owed, Jesus rose from the dead. If you're a Christian, if you have received what Jesus did for you by faith, you know with certainty that God will never forsake you. For Jesus on the cross 
God's silence was God's absence. For you, on this side of the cross and resurrections, God's silence is never God's absence. God will never abandon you because he has already abandoned his son. God is always near because the son rose from the dead. God received Jesus again and so that Jesus Christ can give his very life to you as he gave it for you. This is why even if the silence is prolonged and the circumstances do not change and the healing never comes, this is why that's okay. It's okay because there is coming a day for those who are in Christ, the people of God, when there will be no more silence. The circumstances will be joyful intimacy in the fullness of God's presence and the healing, it will be complete and final. In this, you can hope during the darkest days. I guarantee you that your days will never be as dark, no matter how dark they may get. They will never be as dark as those last three hours that Jesus hung on the cross. You can cling tightly to the guarantee of verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. I pray that each of you will be in that eternal worshiping throng. As long as you have breath, the offer of God to never abandon you is available. But the moment you step out of this life without Christ, you will be abandoned. And God does not want that. He is not silent. He spoke at the cross. God is speaking through the resurrection. And you can respond. We can respond. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning that your silence is never your absence. And we praise you and thank you that you loved us so much that you forsook your son and your son was willing to be forsaken in order that we will never have to be. And so we pray, Father, when the dark days come, that we'll remember and that we'll hope and that the joy that's to come will be the joy that we allow to fill ourselves in the present. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.